It's what we do with oil and gas that counts in our society. I don't think that our grandchildren are going to thank us for the fact that we're still using internal combustion, which is decades old technology, and we're still burning fossil fuels. That was Gillian Martin, and we'll hear more from her later in the show. Hello and welcome to The Stushy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip, and on this episode, I'll be joined by Derek Healy, Callum Ross and Rachel Amory to examine and explain the last week in Scottish politics. But first, a summary of the week's biggest national and international politics stories, compiled and read by Morag Lindsay. Chancellor Rishi Sunak is under pressure as scrutiny continues over his wife's tax-reducing non-domiciled status. Mr Sunak had out at what he called unpleasant smears while Number 10 and Labour denied being behind the leaks. He insisted Akshata Murti, who is estimated to be worth hundreds of millions of pounds, had done nothing wrong by choosing the arrangement which exempts her from paying tax in the UK on foreign income. Developing the Campbell oil field off the coast of Shetland is being described as a huge opportunity for the UK's energy security and jobs. Alan Bruce, the chief executive of Ithaca Energy, spoke out after his firm acquired developer Sikar Point Energy. And rural communities in Scotland could be given the right to take over land from super-rich owners under new legislation proposed by a Labour MSP. Mercedes Villalba is opening a public consultation on her land justice bill, which she intends to lodge at Holyrood. The North East MSP, who is the party's environment spokeswoman, wants to set a legal cap on the number of acres of Scottish land that can be held by any single owner. Thanks, Morag. But let's turn our attention to what's been happening closer to home. Thursday brought the publication of a delayed and much-anticipated energy strategy from the UK government. Prime Minister Boris Johnson wants to bring nuclear home, but whose home exactly? It doesn't look like it'll be Scotland at any rate. So what's the mix going to be? How will we shift to a lower carbon future? And crucially, where will the jobs be? That final point is all too often glossed over, it seems, but it's not escaped the good folk of the North East in particular. We've lots to catch up on about the energy strategy, but first I'd like to welcome to the Stushy our special guest for today, Gillian Martin, SNP MSP in Aberdeenshire East. Hello, Gillian. Hi, Andy. How are you? Hi. Good, thank you. Thanks for joining us. Now, you've been looking at the specifics of the shift from oil and gas reliance to a decarbonised future, and you've been finding some important feedback from the sharp end, uh, which my colleague Callum Ross was reporting on for the P&J the other day. Essentially, we're looking here at a bit of a block between leaving fossil fuel jobs and getting new ones in greener technology, as far as I can tell. So could you tell us a little bit about your local research, what prompted it and, and, and the headline findings? It was a conversation that I had with a friend of mine who was bemoaning the fact that her husband was having to leave the family and go and work to Baku. Um, and he uh, was a, a drilling engineer. He was fed up of the boom and bust and the, the downturns and the uncertainty around oil and gas. But he also wanted to be part of the energy future. And he so he, he took a year out, got a master's in project management, and then just wasn't getting interviews for anything. Anything. I mean, I'm not even just talking about renewables. We're even talking about, you know, going to be one of the people working in the vaccination centres, admin, just wasn't even getting interviewed. And so I, I got on the phone to him and I was talking about it and he said, well, speak to anyone, speak to anybody that's trying to transition and you'll find that there's similar stories, particularly if you're from oil and gas, you're just not even getting through the door in the first place. But how widespread is this? You know, you hear things anecdotally, but that's... That's something I think needs to go on record. So I thought, well, I'll get myself, I'll get myself a survey monkey, 
And I'll put together a survey and I'll just ask lots of questions and I'll direct it at oil and gas workers and I'll see what comes out of it. I didn't expect nearly 600 replies, but that's what I got. It really did. It, it really did catch on. And um, some of the stuff I expected, some of the stuff I didn't expect. And we decided to, we, off the back of the survey that um, I'd put together a report. But the report would be really just a lot of quotes from people, because I think that that's what's missing from this conversation. So do you think that Nicola Sturgeon was is, is, is right um, then to to be much more clear in the path away from oil and gas despite the this particularly just now with um, what Russia is doing with the invasion in Ukraine and the, the the change in oil prices and the the need to maybe move to a more secure source of energy the UK government in particular talking about needing to squeeze every last drop out is that helpful for the short term or is that going to make even bigger problems down the line for places like the northeast but we're always going to need hydrocarbons for a lot of things. And maybe we'll even need hydrocarbons to be exporting to people that haven't changed their systems, you know, much like Norway does. So I think we need an energy mix. But I think on the, on the one hand, I mean, I've, I've talked about the boom and bust of the oil sector in here, and we've, we've seen it many, many times over many decades. Um, we need to be having a... a, a, a an infrastructure that is renewable energy for all the climate change reasons as well, but also for the stability for the workforce as well and the security of energy supply. And I think that's been arguments that have been well made. Um, this reliance on burning fossil fuels is not a sustainable um, system for our future for so many reasons, for geopolitical reasons, for economic reasons and for carbon reasons, but also for, for the individuals that are working in oil and gas at the moment. I mean, you'll speak to anybody that works in oil and gas. They've been working in oil and gas for maybe the last decade. How many times they've been living in a sugary peg when it comes to their employment? Um, and you know, that, that's something we need to look at as well. We can't be wholly reliant on it for our economy in the northeast anymore. Your study came out on the day of the UK energy strategy as well, which is really nuclear heavy. Um, there's an expectation oil and gas fields will slow down. What What is your view on new nuclear in Scotland? If the UK government do what they said, what Boris Johnson said yesterday, and they've got nuclear in the mix, I mean, I, I guess that there's no choice. But Scotland does, um, on many, many days of the year, can produce more than 100% of what their electricity needs is from renewables. Now, we've got some nascent technologies and other fields that need a little bit more of a push and a little bit more of investment, particularly in tidal, um, to harness that energy as well. But I think we have to recognise the fact that it is going to be an energy mix. I'm not pro-nuclear energy. I don't want to see any nuclear energy plants being, being built in Scotland. But as long as we're in the UK, the structures are such that it, if, if England's producing nuclear, it will be part of the energy mix. You mentioned it, um, just before that as well about how you know you could envisage a time where Scotland continues to be an exporter of oil and gas um, for other places, and there's going to be a reliance on it for some time and possibly way into the future. So, are you, do you have to become a bit of a, a voice of dissent on the SNP benches at all on on oil and gas policy to to get this message through, or do you think that, or is the first minister, or the SNP leader Nicola Sturgeon, um, listening to what you're saying? I, th I think Nicola Sturgeon listened to what I'm saying. I think I'm, I'm, so, I'm, such, I'm so low level. I'm such a backbencher. You know, I'm a backbencher, but I do have like conversations with the people that have that within their own portfolio. I have conversations 
all the time with the likes of Richard Lockhead and Michael Matheson around this. And I think that I think that some of the stuff that the First Minister said has been actually misconstrued and misreported because she has said, for example, Campbell, she has said it has to pass a climate compatibility checkpoint. She's not said no to it. She's not saying no or offshore um, uh, oil and gas fields should be developed. So they must pass a climate compatibility checkpoint. And I agree with her. I think that that is a responsible thing. That's what the UK government are saying as well. But of course, what they're what we're saying is that some of the ones that, that potentially are about to be developed, should they not also be subject to a climate compatibility checkpoint, given that we've just announced a climate emergency? I don't think that's incompatible with anything that I'm saying. And I don't think that I'm a voice of dissent at all. I think actually, you know, a lot of the North East MSPs, they have obviously understand a real rich understanding of oil and gas. But I keep on coming back to this one thing. It's what we do with oil and gas that counts in our society. I don't think that our grandchildren are going to thank us for the fact that we're still using internal combustion, which is decades old technology, when, you know, you know, hundred years on from when it first when it first was, was invented and we're still burning fossil fuels. I heard recently a chap saying to me, oil and gas is too precious to burn. Why are we still burning it? We can use it for so many other things. We should be heating our homes and powering our transport using far more sustainable methods. Um, but, you know, will will we be in a position where we're actually not using an awful lot of our own hydrocarbons for burning? Well, that's up to a lot of things. That's up to a lot of infrastructure commitments from both governments. You know, look at de decarbonising the gas grid for heating our homes. I don't hear anything in that from Boris Johnson. That would have been really good to hear, that they're maybe looking at how we can actually reduce our reliance on gas, burning gas in our individual homes to heat them. Okay. Julie Martin, thanks for joining us on the Stushi today. Callum, you, you brought this story to light for our titles when we were talking about the uh, the survey and how attitudes are in the northeast to employment prospects. You were listening to that uh, conversation there. What do you make of the the particular problems that the government's facing and how SNP members in particular are facing? What, what's the future for this? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, we should probably say that Gillian Martin deserves a bit of credit for going out and doing this, I think. Let's be honest, despite what she says about uh, Nicola Sturgeon's position on oil and gas, uh, uh, being misreported and and the, that kind of idea, uh, oil and gas and the so-called just transition is a bit of a sensitive subject for the SNP at the moment. Kind of, you know, yeah. so tied up with the party's history, and now you know there does seems to seem to have been a, a shift in emphasis in terms of their support. And this survey that Gillian Martin's gone out and done it does make slightly uncomfortable reading for the Scottish government with so many offshore workers saying they're they're not getting the support basically that they need uh, to make the move into renewables only one in 10 uh, i think it was 9% saying they, they they have enough opportunities to make that switch so so it seems like there's a bit of a chasm between you know the aim uh, and and where we are in terms of getting to that goal and you know i mentioned Jilly martin it, <laughs> You, you asked her if she's a bit of a rebel, uh, and I don't, she probably doesn't see herself as a rebel, but it does, does kind of um, uh, seem like many MPs and MSPs these days, perhaps particularly in Gillian's 
party, given the size of its contingent, you know, they're a bit afraid of sticking their head above the parapet and being seen to do anything that might undermine in any way the, the messages being mm. put out by ministers and and the party leadership. But Gillian Martin's kind of gone out and, and tried to confront it and find some solutions. That's absolutely what she should be doing uh, because, you know, it's fundamental to the future of her constituency, I, I, I guess. I thought it was interesting that she she almost she downplayed her own position quite a bit there. I'm just a wee lowly bad yeah, bitch. I don't think that's quite that's, the case. That's not entirely true. And if she keeps doing things, I mean, let's be honest. She a lot of people probably think she should be a, a minister already. Uh, there, she was involved in a controversy a few years ago, wasn't she, with uh, some mm. old blog posts? Uh, I, I think that's probably the reason she's not a minister at the moment. But um, this is exactly what 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 MSPs and M- MPs should be doing, and and she. Um, what she's saying on this will be listened to, I'm sure, by by the likes of Michael Matheson yeah. and and uh, Nicola Sturgeon herself. Mm. Um, I thought it was interesting as well. She's talking about Scotland continuing to be an exporter of oil and gas into the future as well. It's um, very much keeping an industry alive there. Yeah, and you know these these SNP MSPs and MPs in the northeast they're, they're in a real tricky position, aren't they? Because they know they understand how important oil and gas is to the the economy. You know, it's 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 absolutely fundamental, and I think there must be, even though Gillian Martin's not going to come on the station and say it, there must be a real frustration at some of the the remarks that 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 are made from from some of their their colleagues. Uh, uh, you know, from out with the the northeast. Yeah. Uh, uh, and about the future of, of oil and gas, it, it, it really is a gift to the Conservatives in some way. Um, uh, and I'd imagine with this kind of survey and this kind of work, Julia Martin's trying to um, sort of respond to that and yeah. and show that she's taking this this issue seriously. Well, Rachel, um, Amory, you're also here. You were looking at the the separate UK strategy and its focus on nuclear. Um, we mentioned that in the conversation as well. But um, just for the the benefit of those not sure of the technical reasons why what 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 is it that stops new nuclear power stations being built in scotland and what what's the sort of tension there what what's going to happen next yeah i mean the the snp and the scottish government they've been very firmly against use of nuclear power as you heard Gillian martin saying there and technically it is possible for the scottish government to reject nuclear power because even though energy is reserved to westminster Holyrood has complete control over planning in Scotland. So if Westminster says we want to build a nuclear power station here in Scotland, Holyrood can just use its planning powers to block this. And um, I think if that happens, they they really will. Um, the Energy Secretary earlier in the week said there's three main reasons the SNP opposes nuclear power. I mean, the first is the environmental impact. The second one is safety. I mean, we're all aware of incidents like Fukushima and Chernobyl. If, if something goes wrong, it is pretty catastrophic. And as Julie Martin was saying, the third reason would be the expense of it. Michael Masson says that the electricity being made at Hinkley Sea Power Station, that's a, power, that's a nuclear station in Somerset, it's £92 per megawatt, whereas renewable energy is around half of that. So it's, it's, it is quite expensive to make. And I think that's sort of one of the main tensions here between Westminster and Hollywood when it comes to nuclear power. It's zero emissions though, isn't it? That's where the the... The clash comes, and you you know the although the the Scottish Green Party, for example, are wholly opposed to new nuclear as well. There are people in the green movement, I suppose, who just think, well, it's completely zero carbon to pump out nuclear power. Well, that was one of the big things that um, Boris Johnson was saying. I mean, this is going to help the government meet its targets. It's going to create lots of jobs. That 
the people who are wanting this in the UK government, that's the that's the points they are pushing, isn't it? Okay, well, all this chat about policy and we've got an election around the corner. So luckily for us, there was a bumper bit of polling that came along this very week, which sort of shines a light a little bit anyway on what all of this chat might be doing um, to people on the doorstep, um, not just the energy stuff we've just spent a lot of time talking about, but the party gates. At Partygate, we've got um, war in Ukraine, we've got COVID, constitutional rows, potholes, all everything's there. So Derek, you were looking at research that came out this week from Servation for a site called Ballot Box Scotland, which is a real treasure trove, I think, for anyone who's taking an interest in the election in May. Who's up and who's down? Well, there were some, some pretty astonishing uh, predictions in it, if it's correct, and I'll maybe come back to that. I know you second that question of how correct it is. Uh, the SNP <laughs> yeah. are on track. There's a caveat at the end. Of course, there's always a caveat. Um, but according to the poll, the SNP are on track for a record result in May, 44% up from 32% in 2017. Uh, Labour are predicted to come second, and then the Conservatives, and then the Lib Dems, and then the Greens. Um, there's bad news, I think, for Alex Salmond in terms of any hopes of establishing Alba as a political force. Um, I think they're predicted to receive about 1% of first preference votes. I should say, uh, you know, really, that some of these results are are pretty eyebrow-raising. Um, the people behind the survey said that it's proven particularly difficult to gauge support for independent candidates. In the past, they've received at least 10% of the vote uh, over the last three elections. I think that was certainly the case. But in this poll, they finished with just 1%. So there is definitely that caveat there. And it's also worth saying that the polling ahead of 2017 looked just as good for the SNP. But then on the day, that materialised just kind of that, that's why that support just failed to materialise, really. But if these findings are accurate, the SNP are on track to, to deliver you know, an astonishing result. Uh, Labour would be looking again at becoming the second largest party at government level. So obviously not such good news for the rest of the parties. But it, you know, this is this is a very good finding for the SNP and, and one of these first big polls that we've had. And I think if they have a few more of these, they'll be, they'll be delighted in, in the coming weeks. Yeah, well, I was, I was looking at it, and um, that they're the kind of like first preference votes, and yeah. of course, the voting system in council elections is is a form of proportional voting where you get preferences one, two, three. If there's three members standing in that ward, for example, um, so it looks like the SNP and the Conservatives are the beneficiaries of a very strong first preference, mm -hmm. which is the same in the the national politics picture. And the Greens looked like they were nowhere, but then if you look at the second preference, I thought that was really interesting because the Greens are right up at the top nearly a quarter of the the share for second preferences so if um if that is the the way it transfers then you've got a pretty strong snp green ticket as well so i wonder if um they'll actually get a decent result this time in the council elections well it's quite interesting because what seems to happen is that in terms of first preference votes quite often that is split on where people find themselves sitting on the independence question. Um, so if a part, the more pro-union pro they are or pro-independence they are, that seems to play quite well in this, this type of voting system. Um, but what you, what you then see in the second or third preferences is people thinking a little bit more about where they actually would like to vote in an ideal situation. You know, if, if, if actually they had a, a situation where they were more likely to get a candidate elected, um, 
that's that that's what we tend to see. So it's quite interesting to see the Greens doing so well. Um, I don't know whether that speaks to the fact that they are now in government um, with the SNP. You know, they've got a, a power sharing agreement there. Perhaps that's why. Um, but yeah, it'll be very interesting if that if that, if that continues in the coming weeks. Mm. Um, it could be quite a result, I think. There's um, the caveat. I saw Alan Folds, who runs the ballot box Scotland account, and did this commission this from starvation. He makes a point in there. He said that there's another polling company called Comres, and they don't do. He says they don't do local elections polling at this level because it's impossible to gauge at that really hyper local level what the, the local issues are. I mean, we've just discussed that. Yeah, it's the constitution as usual, isn't it? So I guess it could go absolutely bananas and all over the place really on the on the day. So and turnouts never very good on a council election. So I guess the only thing to do is to go out and vote on May the fifth. From May the fifth to April the sixth, um, Rachel, you 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 know all about the date, April the sixth. I actually was looking up some stuff here. It's a quick quiz. Why is April sixth um, noteworthy? It's Waltzing Matilda Day in Australia. It's National Fisherman's Day in Indonesia. New Beer's Eve in the United States. It's also the anniversary of Paul Daniels' birthday. What on earth is New Beer's Eve? And I know. That's that's a whole episode in itself. We need to we need to take the take Stushy on the road <laughs> and go and do some US electoral politics on New Year's Eve. But yeah, Rachel, tell us what April the sixth is really all about. Well, you guys might not have heard of it, but it is Tartan Day. Um it's it's a celebration of all things Scottish, but it's actually more celebrated in North America than it is here in Scotland. And like you said, the official day is April the sixth, which is the anniversary of the Declaration of Our Broth. Um, it's been celebrated for quite a few decades now in Canada and the USA, and it's actually a full week of events. And the biggest event is this weekend. It's a giant Tartan Day parade in New York, and Marvel and Doctor Who actress Karen Gillan, she's going to be leading the parade this year. Um, but the reason that we're interested in it is because um, Scotland's External Affairs Secretary, Angus Robertson, he's flown over there to take part in celebrations. And in the past week, he's been he's been meeting all kinds of people from from the U.S. Congress, from the White House, um, the Canadian House of Commons. He's also been to Niagara Falls, which was um, lit up in blue and white, especially for his visit. Now, one question we had is: Is this visit really good for promoting Scotland overseas and boosting tourism numbers? I mean, we really need that after the COVID pandemic, of course. Or is this just a freebie at taxpayers' expense? Um, now, there is quite a divide of opinion when you look on his social media feed. Um, but we must remember, I mean, Scottish tourism does rely so heavily on the USA and Canada. I mean, for example, I've got some friends in Texas and they're coming to Scotland this summer only because they like the photographs that I've been posting of Scotland on my Instagram account. Of Angus Robertson in no, the No, pictures that I've been posting on my own personal account. <laughs> um, but I mean, like, that just really shows just how, how important it can be to sort of promote Scotland's beauty and culture internationally. And Angus Robertson has been holding meetings on tourism and trade while he's been over there, so he has been doing serious work. Um, but we asked the Scottish government, can you tell us how much this cost, this trip is going to cost? And, I mean, they didn't answer our question. They just sort of gave us a very general, vague response back about how important the trip is. We didn't get our figures how much it's going to cost. I mean, there's a recent trip by Nicola Sturgeon and some of our staff to California and New York. Now, that trip came in at around £40,000. So maybe that's the figure we're looking at, but we don't know because the government won't tell us. Yeah, uh, it's a week-long event and it's 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 obviously a big deal there. But it wasn't just the SNP either, I suppose. There was um, Jack McConnell. Seared on the photo album of my brain is that picture of him in a nice 
pinstripe grey kilt. Yes. Posing <laughs> in, in the States. Yeah. Um, doing his bit for the, what was it? The best small country in the world. Anyway, that's, we've, we've been everywhere today. We've been all around the, around the globe. But that's just all we have time for this week. So thanks to Callum Ross and Rachel Amory and Derek Healy and producer Morvan McIntyre. And of course, to you for listening. We'll be back next week with more, but until then, and even after then, pick up or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal, and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed. Goodbye. The Stushi is the politics podcast from DC Thompson, designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, Westminster, and our communities so that you can be better briefed. Don't miss an episode by following The Stushy today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. And if you know folks like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune in or follow Stushy Scott on Twitter and Facebook. And stay even more up to date on local and Scottish news by subscribing to The Courier or Press and Journal, where you can get one month of unlimited access for just £1. Check the episode notes for details and terms.